Please be seated. Children can go to uh, Children's Chapel now with uh, the Ryersons. You can turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, the text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Uh, so I think it was probably enjoyable for most of you last week that uh, Pat Roach was here. And um, I think he told you that we kind of finagled a schedule for ourselves so that we'd have to do a little bit less sermon prep on weeks that were busy because of presbytery meetings. And um, I think he, he mentioned the fact that he was going to say um, that you should pray for your pastor. And that's uh, it's probably good and right. I know I need it. So um, if you want something to pray for, uh, my whole family, except for me, has been uh, really sick for a couple weeks, um, ear infections with kids and whatnot. And, um, you know, obviously, be great if they got better, but um, I think our patience with one another is wearing thin, so uh, help, help uh, spiritually would be good. Um, and so they're not here, uh, largely because Jerry's got morning sickness. So there you go. <laughs> That's my way of announcing that. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah. So, <clears throat> so 1 Corinthians 15. We're, um, we're coming to the end of a series where we've been talking about uh, Easter, right? Resurrection-related uh, themes, and um, we're gonna. This this will be the last Sunday where we do that, where we discuss kind of the significance of the resurrection. Uh, next Sunday we're gonna be gone, and so um, Steve Hall is gonna be here to preach. He's the the assistant pastor at In Town in Portland, our sister church down there. Uh, so he'll be here uh, next week, and then actually the following week we'll be here. I'll be here, but um, gonna have. Uh, Casey Bedell preach, and he's an intern with Pat Roach at Hope in Portland. So I'm going to get a little bit of variety over the next couple weeks. And then uh, we'll pick up with a new series uh, from the book of Amos, if you want to read ahead. So, But this morning we'll talk about 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so there's, there's an old joke that you've probably heard some version of. Um, I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, there's, there's two guys in a coffee shop, and one is wearing a a cross on a chain around his neck. And so this, this guy meets him. He's like, hey, are you a Christian? Uh, he says, yes. Me too. Are you um, a Catholic or a Protestant? A Protestant. Hey, me too. Right on. Um, Arminian or Reformed? Uh, Reformed. Hey, me too. Uh, Lutheran or Presbyterian? Presbyterian. That's great. So am I. Uh, PCUSA or uh, PCA? PCA. Wow, that's great. Yeah, me too. Um, so what's your worship like? Do you sing contemporary music or do you use the Trinity hymnal? Or uh, No, we, we, we do hymns and psalms. Hey, that's awesome. Me too. Um, so communion. Monthly communion or weekly communion? Weekly. Hey, that's great. Yeah, our church too. Um, do you have wine or grape juice? Uh, we do wine. Yeah, awesome. That's, that's us too. Uh, do you take the, the elements uh, separately or do you do intinction? Well, you know, we're in a, a rented space <clears throat> right now. We don't have access to the kitchen. It'd be kind of hard to clean out all this stuff. So we, we do intinction, which mainly because it's convenient. Convenient? Intinction? Die, heretic scum! <laughs> <clears throat> um, so... Um, 
What's wrong with this picture? I mean, it's actually fairly a uh, common picture in our circles, um, in our denomination, right? Um, the guy is concerned for truth, which is a good thing, right? Um, but he's taken it too far. He's gone overboard on what we would hopefully uh, say is just kind of minor issues, uh, maybe insignificant issues, to the point of um, uh, taking these issues to the point of dividing him from his brother in Christ. Um, he's taken the, the point too far. <clears throat> he hasn't made a distinction between things that are of primary importance in our faith and the things that are secondary or tertiary or, or just less uh, important. Uh, everything is a matter of utmost importance for this guy. Uh, it's a matter worth fighting over, matter worth dying for, maybe a uh, matter worth killing someone else for. Um, in our passage this morning, Paul gives us a short list of things of first importance. And that short list is basically the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, these things stand at the core of the Christian faith. We need to give them top priority in our lives, in our thoughts, in our relationships. And we need to see the difference between essentials like these things and non-essentials like how you take communion sometimes, <laughs> right? Um, and we need to learn how to interact with others when it comes to both essentials and non-essentials. Uh, and that's what we'll look at this morning. So <clears throat> let me pray, and then we'll read uh, the, the passage. Father, we come to you um, for asking for your help. We have your word before us, and our only hope for it doing uh, good work in our hearts and our minds is you uh, sending your spirit to illuminate it uh, for us. So we pray that you would remind us of the gospel, that you would um, uh, give us a, a true uh, desire to, to learn more about you and to draw close to you and to depend on you for all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, the, the Apostle Paul probably wrote this letter um, to the Corinthians before, um, before the Gospels were written, actually. Scholars think uh, that sometime maybe in the early to mid-50s A.D., so about 20 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, uh, even though this letter, even though Paul's, um, the, the content that we have from Paul here, comes so early in the writings of the New Testament, there's already evidence in this passage of sort of a a pre-existing uh, creedal statement 
right? Something that had uh, been developed to some degree between the crucifixion and the resurrection and here, these earliest of the letters uh, of the New Testament. Uh, it says in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died, he was buried, that he was raised, and he was seen by others. Um, Paul had seen the resurrected Jesus right, on the, the road to Damascus after Jesus' earthly ministry, after the, the crucifixion, resurrection, and his ascension. So the gospel that Paul received, uh, he heard from other disciples, right? Jesus didn't sit down and explain his whole life uh, story to him at the, on the, uh, during that encounter on the road to Damascus. Uh, he heard this from the other disciples, and it seems like the essential elements had already been boiled down into a sort of uh, formulaic statement, an early creed. It's uh, remarkably similar to parts of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, uh, which we recite on a regular basis as our uh, confession of faith. We're a confessional church, a confessional church, which means that we find a clear expression of our faith, what we believe, uh, what we believe the scriptures teach, in confessions that have been agreed upon by many Christians, uh, most if not all of them generally. Uh, formally, the confession of this church is the Westminster Confession of Faith and, uh, and the catechisms, the, the question and answer formats that um, attend with that. And our officers, uh, our elders and deacons, our, our leaders in the churches um, believe that that's a good expression of biblical teaching on the most important matters of our faith. Right? Informally, we often uh, recognize that we have in common with all Christians the basic beliefs that are represented in the Apostles' Creed, for example, uh, of which this paragraph in 1 Corinthians actually seems to be maybe a part, right? like a proto-creed, um, that Christ died, was buried, was raised, he was seen. Uh, that kind of language is creedal language, right? It's confessional language. Now, <clears throat> this is interesting. Many people think of Christianity as a set of... Um, a set of religious ideas, a set of teachings, doctrines, that might be different from other religions, but that also might have a lot in common with other religions, right? Um, if you ask somebody what they think Christianity is, they might sum it up with uh, an idea or a teaching, something like the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, <laughs> or um, that we should love one another and, and be tolerant of one another, right? That's how they might summarize Christianity. And if you ask people, um, even other Christians and other churches who don't go to our church, what they think of our church, what, what they think of our type of confessional Christianity, they might tell you that we like to focus on truth in an abstract way. Right? Um, like our faith is basically a systematic theology. It's a set of religious doctrines. Um, we are a church that's concerned with the truth, it's the truth of God's word, first and foremost. But the truth that comes to us from God's word, even as it's summarized in ancient creeds like the Apostles' Creed or in this kind of proto-creed in 1 Corinthians 15, the truth that comes to us from God's word is not just a set of abstract ideas right? uh, or teachings or commands. Right? Certainly not a systematic theology, <laughs> The things of first importance 
in Christianity, the things that stand at the core of the gospel as essentials of our faith are historical events, historical events. Uh, Christianity is first and foremost about a real person. It's Jesus. And about what that person did in time and space, his life, his death, his resurrection. From the beginning of the church, before there were any New Testament gospels or letters written, there was the shared truth of the historical events surrounding the person of Jesus Christ, the most essential of which are seen in our passage. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So Christ died. That's the event, right? The historical event that happened outside of Jerusalem, outside the city walls. Christ died for our sins. That was the significance of the event. Uh, It's a statement about the atonement, right? This is um, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on our behalf, which is absolutely central to the arc of the whole Old Testament. God is a holy God. We've broken his law. We've offended him personally, which means we're in big trouble. And if we're going to get out of this dilemma and have a good relationship with God and not be destroyed for our own sins, someone has to step in and take our place and suffer God's righteous anger over our sin for us. There is absolutely no other way for us to be made right with God. Uh, Remember, Jesus prayed with agony in Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood in his distress as he was looking forward to that next day's event of being crucified and killed. And he prayed, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there is any other way for sinners to be restored in your sight, God, please let me not have to drink the cup of your wrath and die. And God's response was silence. There was no other way. No one comes to the Father except through the sacrifice of his Son, except through the mercy and grace that's found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is the point of the whole Bible. Uh, It says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That's not just to say that there are a few select passages here and there you can use as proof texts in the Old Testament that address this concept of uh, sacrificial um, atonement. Right? The scriptures in their entirety are about the redemption that God provides in order to reconcile people to himself, people who are just like us. Right? Uh, and that redemption is accomplished in the death of his son, the sacrificial lamb. That imagery is all throughout the Old Testament. Some passages are starkly clear about this. For example, our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 53, which um, you know, I think we read somewhat frequently. Um, it's about the Messiah. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. His soul makes an offering for guilt. So you and I and every other person who's ever lived deserves to be cut off out of the land of the living, cut off from God relationally, cut off from God eternally. And there is only one human who didn't deserve to be cut off. And, um, and he stepped forward to give his life for ours, to be our substitute, to die under God's wrath in our place. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross 
is at the core of the Christian faith. If you don't have that, you don't have the gospel. <clears throat> Continuing on, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ was buried. Uh, this is actually an apologetic statement, right? Not apologetic in terms of saying I'm sorry, but apologetic is in defending the faith against people who question um, the truth of it, right? It's an apologetic statement in defense of the fact that Jesus actually died, right? He was really physically dead for a couple of days. It wasn't just that he passed out and was resuscitated. He wasn't just mostly dead. He was all dead, right? Which highlights the unique and miraculous nature of what happened next. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Um, he was raised. Literally, this is, um, this is in the perfect tense, which is where we get our uh, kind of Easter proclamation, he is risen, right? He is risen indeed. Uh, that might sound grammatically incorrect to some of you. <laughs> um, like it should either be he rose or he has risen or he is alive or something. Um, but the Greek perfect tense is a combination actually of uh, kind of the past tense and the present tense. It's a present ongoing reality that's inaugurated by a past event, right? Something happened in the past that has these ongoing effects. Jesus was raised from death to life by God and because of this he is alive forevermore never to die again. Right? He is risen. Uh, and this is something Paul says is verifiable by several hundred witnesses. It says Cephas, uh, which is Peter, then the rest of the twelve, so that's kind of the technical term for the, the band of um, chosen disciples that were tagging along with Jesus for those years, um, even though literally at that point there were only eleven of them because Judas was no longer with them, the twelve, it's those guys, right? Then, more than 500 of his followers at one time. Then, James, who was uh, probably Jesus' half-brother, James, who probably was not a follower of Jesus while Jesus was alive before his crucifixion. Probably did not follow Jesus as a disciple until after the resurrection, after he saw his half-brother raised from the dead uh, to glorious immortality. Then the rest of the apostles, and apostles here, um, Paul is using that word not to say these are the, the big, the 12, the main guys. Um, apostle just means someone who's sent out, and in Paul's language that usually refers to someone who, who saw Jesus alive after he was dead, right? They were a witness to the resurrection, and that might include people like Barnabas. Um, so the rest of them. Right? Everybody else who saw Jesus after that. Then, lastly, Jesus appeared to Paul himself. And he calls himself one untimely born, right? which is actually somewhat uh, medical language used of um, aborted fetuses or uh, miscarriages. Uh, born early not yet ready to, to come out into the world from the womb. That was how he described 
himself. And he's probably referring to the fact that he saw the risen Lord Jesus before his conversion, before he was a follower of Christ, uh, while he was still a persecutor in the church. And in fact, um, Paul may be the only unregenerate person ever to see the risen Lord Jesus and survive. And it didn't damage, right? He uh, was blinded by the experience that led to his conversion. All this to say, um, N.T. Wright kind of summarizes it for us. The whole thrust of the paragraph is about evidence, about witnesses being called, about something that actually happened for which eyewitnesses could and would vouch. In our culture, the fact that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead seems to be a more difficult truth to swallow than his death on the cross. In fact, it's probably true of any culture that's been exposed to the gospel that they hear about this risen Lord Jesus. People don't just come back from the dead. So we're going to need some persuading, right? We're going to need some form of evidence. And that is what Paul is doing here. By any reasonable measure, he has provided adequate historical proof of the resurrection. Any historian would look at this and say, that's a pretty powerful argument for the historicity of the resurrection. This was a public challenge that Paul was making in a public document. Don't believe in the resurrection? Go talk to these hundreds of eyewitnesses who are still alive and willing to tell you about it. You don't make a statement like that unless it's true. Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb. The authorities were making up stories to cover up that fact. Hundreds of people really saw Jesus alive after the the crucifixion, including Paul himself, who was originally biased against the truth of it. Right? He didn't want to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And he saw it while he didn't want to believe it. And it was the only explanation for why these, these fearful, weak followers, the disciples, were willing to die for their testimony, which they all did eventually. Right? The resurrection is the only thing that explains that. Some of them have already died for their testimony, which is what Paul's pointing out when he says, of those 500 brothers, most of them are still alive. Some of them have fallen asleep. Right? Some of them have already died for their testimony. They preached the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus. They were threatened. They didn't back down. And they were killed. Blaise Pascal an old uh, French philosopher and mathematician says, I believe those witnesses who, gets, who get their throats cut. I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. The resurrection isn't just something uh, someone would have made up. People don't have group hallucinations. People don't want to die for stories they know aren't true. The only reasonable explanation for it all is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Tim Keller says, The resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact much more fully attested to than most other events of ancient history that we take for granted. Everybody believes in the seven wonders of the ancient world. How many of those are still around? Nobody's seen those. All we have is 
testimony about them, we have much more sure testimony about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is more than enough evidence to make the resurrection a historically secure, credible fact. And, as such, it stands as a matter of first importance in the Christian gospel. The gospel is the good news about what Jesus has done for his people, what God has done for his people. Karl Barth says that the resurrection is the most positive subject that can be imagined. The resurrection changes everything, right? It's the proof that God is working to set everything right. Everything that's broken and messed up in this fallen world. God is working to set it all right. And the resurrection is proof of that. It's the guarantee that Jesus is the Savior. And that those who trust in him will be raised to eternal life with a body like his. The resurrection reveals God's attitude toward humanity. Even though we've all sinned against him, he has provided for us a glorious hope. The resurrection is unmistakably good news about God's good will toward us. And the resurrection redefines humanity itself. Jesus is now truly and gloriously human. And he will be forever the way humans were always meant to be in God's plan. Even though we've wrecked that vision for ourselves by our sin, God wouldn't leave it at that. He wouldn't leave us in our despair. He has made a way for us to be restored, to be human the way he originally intended for us to be human. And the way to get to that humanity is through the humanity of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, to throw yourself on his mercy, to trust his sacrificial death on the cross for you, to find peace with God through him, to be united to him by faith. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, none of it matters. There's no good news. N.T. Wright again says, Without the resurrection, there is no reason to suppose that Jesus' crucifixion dealt with sin. But with the resurrection, the divine victory over sin and hence over death is assured. Jesus was raised in accordance with the scriptures. Again, a reference to the overarching themes of restoration and new life and rebirth, regeneration that are found throughout the whole Old Testament. Right? But again, for example, from our Old Testament reading, Isaiah 53, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Therefore, I will divide, with him, uh, divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He took his place as one of us, right? He took our place. He poured out his soul to death, and after that, he shall see and be satisfied, and God will give him the spoils of victory over death. After he had made atonement for sinners, he would be raised from the dead to be able to enjoy those spoils of victory. So the resurrection, as a matter of first importance, ought to thoroughly shape our vision of God and of our spirituality. So how much does the resurrection factor into your, your life and your thoughts, your spiritual thoughts? When you think about God in general, 
do you think of him as the one who raised Jesus from the dead? Which is actually how he's talked about quite frequently in the New Testament. He's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. As the one who has guaranteed that he will also raise you from the dead. We sing that song, Jesus lives and so shall I. How often do you think about God as the one who raises us from the dead because he's raised Jesus from the dead? When you pray, do you think about your prayers being made in Jesus' name, going to God through the risen Lord Jesus who uh, stands, who lives in heaven right now, ruling over all things for your good? When you come to church or when you talk about spiritual things, do you focus primarily on behavior? on your own behavior? Or do you focus on the historical facts that Christ was died and Christ was raised for you? When you share the gospel with others, are you trying to impress them with your intellect and win an argument? Or um, are you trying to impress them with your holiness, your morality? They're going to see Jesus living in me and they're going to say, I want some of that. That looks so good, right? Are you trying to impress them with how good you are Or are you pointing them to a crucified and risen Lord? Someone who was crucified for you because you desperately needed it because of your sin and your weakness, because of your rebellion against God. And do you point through your own rebellion and your own desperate need of his mercy to the mercy that is found in Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection? When you read the Bible, are you looking for practical behavior modification tips? Tips for uh, having a good marriage. Tips for being a good parent. Or when you read the Bible, are your eyes fixed on Jesus who shows us the love of God uh, and shows us that that love comes to us in spite of our own sin and weakness, in spite of being a bad spouse, a selfish spouse, or a tyrannical, (laughs) terrible parent. Jesus' crucifixion and maybe especially his resurrection. It changes everything. It imparts new meaning to everything. It infuses everything with hope that cannot be quenched. It has completely reordered our world. Even the way that we keep track of time. It's why the early Christians changed the Sabbath from the seventh day, the last day of the week, to the first day of the week. It's why we meet on Sundays for worship instead of Saturdays. Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. And that that new structure to our week symbolizes the new creation of all things. It's a new week. Everything is made new because of the resurrection, and our future is bright and full of hope because of it, not just this week, right, but into eternity. The resurrection gives us strength and courage to face each week, knowing that God has been gracious to us already. And he has promised all good things to us in the new heavens and the new earth after our own resurrection. Just think. Just think of the sheer magnitude of these things of first importance. In light of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what is worth fighting for? What is worth taking a stand on? 
What's worth dividing from fellow Christians over? What's maybe worth overlooking and letting go in light of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Are you going to say, like Martin Luther, dig in your heels, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, as if you're fighting a world-changing battle every moment of your lives about issues like parenting or Sunday school or music and church or what's in the cup on the communion table. Are you going to fight those battles in light of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Our church should stand for and fight for the truth about who Jesus is and about what he's done for us. Jesus is the way to God and there is no other way. We won't compromise on that. Because without that, we have no good news. We have nothing. We have no gospel. He is risen from the dead. And we will hold on to that for dear life. Um, We won't compromise on that, even if people call us narrow and bigoted and superstitious. Even so, um, if they do call us that, and we have to dig in our heels on that and fight for that truth, the truth of the things of first importance of the gospel, we're not going to take up arms and fight. Because the message of the gospel is one of peace and reconciliation. If we have to draw lines in the sand, we're going to do it with grace. Because you can't promote the grace of God by being really mean. And what about the secondary things, matters that are not of first importance? We'll do those things, right? I believe the Bible teaches a bunch that, uh, that doesn't strike at the core, at the vitals of our religion. We're going to do the things that we believe the Bible tells us to do, and we'll talk about them, and we'll teach them to our children. But we're not going to fight about them. We're not going to divide over them. If you see yourself at odds with some non-essentials of this church, then I hope that you'd see that as an opportunity to practice grace with one another instead of dividing from one another. If you see yourself at odds with some non-essentials of other churches, I hope that we'll still look for ways to highlight the things that we have in common with them, to find ways to work together with them for the sake of the kingdom going forth in this place. So for some of you, uh, all of this means that that you'll have to get some backbone, right, and stick up for the essentials and stand for the truth of the, the things of first importance in the gospel, whether it's in your family or in your workplace. For others of you, it probably means you need to lose your critical spirit always arguing about those non-essential things. It's okay not to have the last word in every argument. God didn't put you here to censor everybody on every point of doctrine or practice. God put you here to celebrate the things of first importance with each other, the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. These things are for our good. So let's hold on to these things. And let them shape our life and our faith. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father, we desperately need your help to, um, to focus on the things um, of first importance, to keep the main thing, the main thing in our lives. Um, we pray that you would help us to do that more and more in our marriages and in our, in our parenting, in our workplace, especially in the church. Would you fill our minds with thoughts of our crucified and risen Lord? Would you shape all of our conversations around the, the truth of the gospel, that he lived and died and rose again, all for us, all for our good and for your glory? We pray that you would uh, give us a deeper connection to this gospel and that it would truly um, permeate every part of our lives and that we would devote ourselves to this, the apostles' teaching, uh, these fundamentals of our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.